Thank you, worship band and worshiping congregation. We got to go to the throne of grace together. Now we're coming to that part of the service in which we have the sermon. Typically, we read some scripture. That's what we're going to do today and then pray, and then we'll jump right into the sermon, which is on that scripture. We are back in John chapter six. So I think I had told you two weeks ago, the week before Easter, that I was finished John chapter six, but one of you prevailed upon me and said, no brother, you gotta do some more. There's some more John chapter six down there. You didn't cover it, wanna hear it all. So that's all it took was that one voice prevailed over me and we're back in John chapter six. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start into John chapter 10 because there's some stuff we wanna mine out of that. And then as I've been telling you, and I've been working on this series, then we're going to the book of Deuteronomy and the hard part's gonna be keeping it short enough, the series. Because there's, so I read through the entire book Deuteronomy again yesterday, and I'm making notes, and I want to preach on this part and that part, planning it all out. And man, I want to preach on so much of it because there's so much good in the book of Deuteronomy. So just letting you know we're headed that away. But today we're in John chapter 6 with the Lord Jesus Christ. And here are his words, and this is the word of God. John 6, verses 48 through 51. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh words of Jesus Christ, the word of God. Let's bow and pray together. Thank you, Father, for bringing us back together again to worship and adore you and now to to profit, get profit for our souls from your holy word. We pray that it would come to us in power, clothed in power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that it will come as that sharpened two-edged sword that it is, that it will cut deep where it needs to cut deep and that you, Lord Jesus, the great physician, will heal where we need to be healed. But may your word accomplish its purposes in every heart. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Jesus is speaking, preaching, if you will, in a synagogue in Capernaum. We're picking it up today, after a week off for Easter, we're picking it up today with... um, we're about halfway or more through the chapter. So I got to give you just a little quick, how'd we get here? So from where we are in the chapter, yesterday, Jesus and a great crowd of about 20,000 people were across a little sea and he was preaching to them and they all got hungry. And Jesus is the one who started talking about bread. Way back in verse five, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. So Jesus starts the topic of bread. And then, you know, they find a boy, he's got some loaves and some fish, and Jesus multiplies a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, 20,000 people. And they're all amazed. This sign Jesus performed in their midst. And they've been hearing his words Words like no man has ever spoken before, words of eternal life. So what should be happening is the people who receive the bread 
should understand that the bread is not the end. Jesus is not here to be your grocery delivery boy. He's not here just to give you bread, but all they get interested in is the bread. Can we have more of that bread? Sir, can we have this bread always? We like free bread. Can we have more? And they have bread on the brain, like Paul says to the Philippians, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, and they're bowing before the belly God, the bread God. So, so they're supposed to look at the bread, the miraculous bread, and hear the words of Jesus, and the bread is supposed to point them, like picture a loaf of bread shaped like an arrow. I bet there's been one sometime in human history. There's been a loaf of bread shaped like an arrow, and the arrow, the loaf of bread, is pointing to Jesus Christ. They're not supposed to be getting all excited about bread. It's just bread. Jesus is going to play down bread. You eat that bread, you die anyway. The point of the bread is it's the point to him, and they should be coming to him. There should be motion in their soul going to Jesus Christ. And they, their eyes should be coming open and light should be going on. He's not like us. He's from heaven. He says that many, many times in the discourse. He repeats things over and over. He repeats that one. I've come down. I'm going to go back up. They should be understanding we're in the presence of someone not human. We're in the presence of someone divine. They should be bowing and blessing and calling upon his saving name. And instead, all they want is bread. So some of them have followed Jesus over to Capernaum, and now we're in the synagogue. By the way, I tried to find out, do we know anything about that synagogue? And we know a little, because in Capernaum, the archaeologists have done their digging, and they found a synagogue, not this one, but one that came 500 years later. But then they dug under that one, and they found what is believed to have been this one. So we now we know how big it is, and so probably being terrible at this, I did a little math and thought, all right, that, that place can, depending on how you seat or whether people are standing, that place can probably hold between 400 and 800 people. So yesterday we had 20,000, a whole bunch of them went home or whatever. They didn't all come across the sea. And today we have, plus some more people from Capernaum who were going to the synagogue anyway, we've got 400 to 800 people listening to Jesus. It's going to be interesting to see what happens by the end of the discourse, what happens to the crowd. Its size is reduced. But Jesus is, is working the theme of bread. Because he initiated it. He started it. He got everybody thinking about bread. He made them bread. And now I'm going to give you a progression of statements followed by the Scripture. Statement followed by the Scripture. Statement. Here's my first statement. Here it is. Jesus identifies himself as the true and living bread that came down from heaven, the bread that gives eternal life. This is what Jesus is telling these people. They should be amazed. Really? You came down from heaven? And your bread, and if we receive you into ourselves, we will have eternal life? That's where they should have been. But they're not there. Let's look at it. Verses 48 through 51 for now. Jesus simply says, I am the bread of life. You know how you want bread? I'm the bread you really need. 
I'm what you really need. I'm what you should really want. I am the bread, the bread. There's no other bread, definite articles there. I am the bread of life. What you need for life more than bread is Jesus Christ. All y'all, you need Jesus Christ more than you need anything else this planet can offer. You need Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. And now to contrast him, here's the bread y'all are interested in. Here's the one that's on your brains, verse 49. Your fathers ate manna. Now that was some pretty special bread, huh? That was like supernaturally provided by God for a hungry people, and every morning it was out there. The name manna in Hebrew means found. We just went out and found it. That was some pretty special bread. And your fathers ate that in the wilderness, and they died. So it was just plain old bread. It didn't give anybody eternal life. It didn't make anybody ready for heaven. It was just bread to digest. By contrast, verse 50, this, and, and I have to believe that Jesus well, we know he's referring to himself. He probably pointed to himself. Maybe he said this, or this. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. He's going to say that again, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So Jesus is teaching them about his preexistence and about his incarnation. You all didn't come down from heaven. You got your start here. You were conceived in your mama's womb. That's where you got your start. You're earthly. I'm not like you. He's teaching them. They should be going, whoa. They're not. I'm not like you. I got my start in heaven in eternity past with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and then him, God the Son. And I have life in myself, and I've come down. That's my incarnation. Have you heard about it? There was this, this Virgin Mary, and the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, the power of the Most High, and she conceived the Lord Jesus. And he's teaching them about his preexistence and his incarnation. They're not getting it. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Manna itself didn't come down from heaven. The manna didn't fall out of the sky like rain. Manna just appeared on the, on the plants, on the ground. But Jesus is the only bread. He's come down from heaven so that, there's a purpose for his coming down, so that one may eat of it, this bread, and not die. They should be going, whoa! You have bread we can eat and not die. Our fathers die. You have something different. What is it? Explain more. We want to hear. They're not doing that. Jesus goes on preaching in the synagogue. If anyone eats, if anyone eats of this bread, literally, it's the one who eats of this bread, he will live forever. They should be saying, oh, Lord, your, your words are burning in my soul. I want to live forever. I want the bread. I want you, Lord Jesus, to be my God. And Jesus goes on to say finally in this section, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. He's pointing to the cross now. He's pointing to crucifixion. He's pointing to giving up his own body on Calvary's tree where he would suffer as a vicarious, substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial lamb of God so that he might bring us to God and make us righteous in the sight of God, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. He's pointing to that, the bread that I will give. I'm going to give bread. It's me. It's my body. I'm going to give it up for the life of the world, and it's my flesh. So this is what Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's in a synagogue. They've never heard anyone talk like this. They've been to the synagogue since they were born. They've never heard a man talk like this. They've never heard this kind of thing. I'm the bread of life. It's me. Eat of me and you won't die. I came down from heaven. I existed up there before. I'm going to go to the cross and die, though it wasn't quite that clear. This is what he taught that day in Capernaum. What comes next? Here's my second statement and then the verses. Here's the statement, very simple. The Jews disputed and questioned. They disputed and questioned. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, and now they ask a question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're disputing, apparently. Well, I think he means this. Well, I think he means that. And they're having disputes about what he really means, and they don't get it. And all they have is a question, how can this be? Instead of, it is so. Instead of, Lord, I believe Instead of, draw me to yourself, I want to know you and follow you and eat the bread that you are and live forever. Instead of that, they're disputing and they're questioning. Now, if we went back to verse 41, we'd see they already grumbled. And in verse 43, Jesus comments that they grumbled. And in verse 61, they're going to be grumbling again. But now in verse 52, they are disputing. So they've grumbled and disputed. One of you pointed out to me last, two weeks ago rather, that Paul wrote in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And they're in the presence of Jesus Christ, and their only response is to grumble and to dispute. How can that be? Was there ever better evangelism than Jesus' evangelism? Was there ever better preaching than the preaching of Jesus Christ? When Jesus Christ preached, was the power of the Holy Spirit present in the building? Did he have the Spirit working with him? And yet, they're blind. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, that the natural man, there's a natural man, there's a spiritual man. The natural man is how you came from your mama's womb. Natural talents, natural abilities, dead in your trespasses and sins. There's a spiritual man. He's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He's no longer flesh. He has life in Christ. And the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And here we see like exhibit A. You want to see what natural people look like? In the presence of Jesus, the Son of God, and his light, and his teaching, and all they do is grumble and dispute. It's a bad day in Capernaum. The Jews disputed and questioned among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So, Jesus next. Here's the third statement, and then we'll look at the text. This statement's way too long, but I just left it that way anyway. Deal with it. Third statement. 
Jesus clarifies. That would have been enough, but I felt I needed to say some more. Jesus goes on to teach them, to teach you, that you must ingest and drink him into your soul. That you must have him as your necessary, like bread is necessary, and life-sustaining nourishment for your soul, that he must be in you, Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. His flesh and his blood, he must be your true food and your true drink. The food you're really hungry for, the food you really love, and I say it reverently, the food that most makes you smack your lips is Jesus Christ. Oh, he nourishes my soul. That's what you need to be feeling and thinking and saying. I, I love him supremely, and he fills me like nothing else can fill me. So Jesus clarifies. Well, let's, let's look at it, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, he hears them disputing, he heard them grumbling, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus introduces something with truly, truly, you know it's the Greek words, amen, amen. So he's really saying, amen, amen. Let me tell you something that's true. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh. There he goes. They're already confused and troubled by him. They're already disputing about this. And now he goes and says, you got to eat my flesh. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, you have temporal life. But compared to the eternal life you need, that's no life. You do not have the life of God in your soul. But by contrast, verse 54, whoever or the one who, the one who feeds on my flesh, they're going, what's he talking about now? Feed on his flesh and drinks my blood. Drink his blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's about the fourth time he said that. I'll get them to the resurrection. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, he doesn't, he's not talking about spiritual cannibalism. He doesn't mean you actually have to eat some human's flesh, his, or drink some human's blood, his. What does he mean by eat and drink his flesh? He means you need to have me in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You need to receive me. I need to indwell you by the Holy Spirit. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. That's the Greek word meno, to abide. It means you remain. That's why he's going to assuredly raise you up at the last day. You'll stay there. Once you get in Christ, there's no getting back out again. You won't want back out again. And he'll never, he says it in the chapter, he won't lose you and he won't cast you out. When you're in Jesus Christ, you're in Jesus Christ forever. Eternal life means eternal life. You'll have it forever. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Let's stick with that terminology for a moment. Do you feed on Christ's flesh? Do you drink Jesus' blood? That is, have you, 
Have you received him? Have you ingested him? Have you taken him inside so he is your sovereign, your God, your Savior, your Lord? Verse 57, as the living Father, see, for the Father is the living, he has life in himself. As the living Father sent me, see, I started up there, and he sent me down here. That's why I'm here. I'm not like you. I came from there, and I've been sent down. And I live. The Father has life. He's the living Father. And I live. I have life because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So the Father has life, and the Son has life. And if you just feed on the Son, you'll have life given to you by them. Verse 58, this, I have to think again, he's pointing to himself. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, not like the manna and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Oh, to have been there. I bet you could hear a pin drop till they started grumbling and disputing again among themselves. Such words had never been spoken in anyone's hearing on the planet. And Jesus is nothing if he isn't dramatic, amen? If he doesn't frequently and here excess, extremely speaks in hyperbole and exaggerations for effect, because he wants punch in his words. He wants it to go with, with power, so he doesn't just say, well, you need to receive me, I'm cracking. No, he's like, you gotta eat my flesh, you gotta drink my blood. Trying to make the point bold and strong. What happens next? Here's my next statement and then the verse. Many hearers find Jesus' message hard to listen to, John 6, 60. When many of his disciples heard it, th that part, especially, drink my blood, eat my flesh. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? John, are you getting this? What do you think, Mary? Are you understanding this? I'm not getting, this is hard. The word hard, it's the Greek word skleros, from which we get like sclerosis, which is the hardening of your arteries or something. So it's, it's hard. It's the first word in the word order. In Greek, you can do that. You, you can put a word first, and it emphasizes that word, and the sentence still works. And so what they really say is, hard, this saying. Who can hear it? The Greek word is akul. Can you hear this? I'm not, it's not going in my ear. Like, they're hearing the sound, but it's not going into their mind and making sense. It's not going into their soul. Many hear, hearers find Jesus' message hard to listen to. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Many. So yesterday he had 20,000. Today in the synagogue he's got maybe, if you can trust my estimates and don't, 400 to 800 people listening to him. And he says, many. Many of those people who heard it, they had been his followers, and they said, all right, this is going too far. He's gone from bad to worse. The more he talks, the less we like him and understand him and want him. And they're saying, this is hard, hard. 
Who can listen to it? By John chapter 10, by the way, many people in the same crowd in verse 20 are going to say, he has a demon and is insane, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, unforgivable sin. To be blessed with such light poured into your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart, and, and your only conclusion is, yeah, he's got a demon and is insane. That's God in front of you. That's the Holy One of Israel you're talking about. Is that the only response you got? Dead in their trespasses and sins. It's not good when you say bad things about Jesus. It doesn't speak well for your life or your soul. When you complain at Jesus or gripe at Jesus or moan about Jesus, when you mock Jesus, doesn't speak well for your soul. It didn't speak well for these people's souls. Hard. I'm not hearing this. You hearing this? Here's my next statement. This is my favorite statement of the seven I'm going to give you. Jesus doubles down and makes things worse. He moves from hard to understand to harder. It's like he says, oh, you're grumbling and disputing? You think it's hard? Well, watch this. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself, he's God, he knows everything, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, there they are grumbling again, third time in the text, grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Knowing that they were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Well, they did. That's why he asked that. I want you to notice, please, that sometimes when Jesus preached, he offended people. One of the cardinal sins in preaching now is thou shalt not offend. I heard a certain preacher out in Southern California say he aims to eventually, he, he's got 6,000 people in his church. His name is John MacArthur. I heard him say that he aims to eventually offend every one of them if he can. Because we're all sinners and there's something that will offend any one of us. Jesus said, do you take offense at this? And he says, I'm going to make it worse. Verse 62, then what if? You think that was bad, what if? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now they're going like, what? You think you're God or something? You're going to be up in God's presence? You think we're going to watch you go up? How's that going to work? No wonder later they're going to say, he's insane. He has a demon. But Jesus goes farther and explains in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. You guys don't have the Spirit. You've only got the flesh. You're only fallen. You're only an Adam. You only have the equipment that you brought with you out of your mother's womb. You need new equipment that the Holy Spirit will give you, a new heart. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help, none at all. The Greek is emphatic. You guys only have flesh. That's why you're not getting it. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Dear friend, when you hear the words of Jesus Christ, when you hear the words of the Word of God, you're hearing words that are spirit and life. 
And the people of God say, amen, that's life to me. I love those words. Verse 64, but, says Jesus, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. He knew it. He knew from the beginning who would be in that synagogue that day and who would believe and who would not believe. He knows all things. And he knew who it was who would betray him. Probably a reference to Judas. And he said, this is why I told you, and he's already told them this several times and in several slightly different ways, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. And Jesus is now explaining again, I think for the third time, similar language, why it is, how it could possibly be that these people in this synagogue have just heard the best sermon ever preached by God the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, and all they're doing is grumbling and complaining. How can that be? Well, this is why I told you. Here's how it can be. No one can come to me. You guys can't come to me yet unless it is granted to you by the Father. Everyone who has it granted to them by the Father comes to Jesus. Everyone who doesn't come to Jesus doesn't come because it's not granted by the Father. Won't be raised up at the last day. This is what Jesus is teaching. So Jesus doubles down and makes things worse. We can't come to Christ unless it is granted by the Father. That's right. Step back from the text for a moment. Let me just point out to you, if you haven't thought of this before, God is all-powerful, right? He's omnipotent. So he has all power. There is no more power than God. God has every bit of power there is. He's got it. He's omnipotent. And He's also all wise, always chooses the best means to the best ends, to accomplish the best ends by the best means. That's why the cross. He's all wise, and he's omniscient. He knows everything. He never has to learn anything. He knew everything forever and ever in eternity past and has never learned a thing. He's always known it all. Think about that for a while. It'll break your brain. This God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise could he save everybody if he was trying his hardest to do so? Well, yeah, he could. With his little finger. Why isn't everybody saved? He could save them all in a moment. People say, well, he doesn't want to violate human wills. He can turn a human will. That's how you get saved. He makes you willing to come to Christ. He regenerates you by his Holy Spirit. He gives you a new heart. Your new heart loves new things. It loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come to him. You stay with him. So Jesus is teaching in that field here when he says, look, here's, here's what's going wrong today in the synagogue. You have the sinless Son of God beaming light into your souls, and you're not coming to me. How can that be? This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus makes things worse. What happens next? Here's my sixth statement followed by the verse. 
many of Jesus' disciples turn back and walk away. They've had enough. They're like, look, all we wanted was bread. We had to listen to all this crazy talk. Can you just give us some bread? They're still on bread. They're not interested in Christ. They're not interested in God. They don't have hearts for the things of the Spirit. They're not hanging on Jesus' words, the words of life. And, and so at this point, they're like, I'm done. They turn back and walk away. And it's interesting that this verse, see the numbers on the verse? This is the 666 verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus has thinned the crowd dramatically. He started with 20,000, and then for various reasons, the crowd got down to, let's say, four to 800, if we're anywhere near right, who are in that synagogue that day. And now many of that number say, I'm done with this. They've been hearing Jesus Christ, and they don't want any more. It reminds me of what happened on Mount Sinai when the people heard God's voice and they said to Moses, we don't want to hear that voice anymore. You go listen to the voice and come tell us what he said. And these people are hearing the voice of Jesus and they're like, I don't want to hear this anymore. I'm going to go get some bread. Going to Panera. <laughs> many. Reminds me of that many, that awful many in Matthew chapter 7, near the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he says that the last day, many, not just a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not? And they trot out their, their credentials. We cast out demons in your name, and so on and so forth. Many. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now I'm going to give you a separate heading. This is not one of my seven. This is like an addendum or something. And I'm calling this Observations on Jesus and Church Growth Methodology. Because this text is begging for it. By the way, this isn't why I decided to preach John 6. I call you to witness. I told you last time we're done, John 6. I wasn't even going to go this far. One of you forced me. Observations on Jesus and church growth methodology. Well, there aren't any observations to make. He didn't have it. He didn't employ it. He didn't use it. By church growth methodology standards, Jesus was a failure. You had 20,000 of them yesterday, and you drove them all away, and you've offended them. They can't understand you. You're speaking in weird things. Why don't you make the message more clear? Jesus Christ was a failure by current church growth methodology standards. So it's really big in churches nowadays. This is everywhere. This is really, really big in our nation anyway. I don't know about elsewhere in the world, but in our nation, this is huge. So we have what, what I'll call designer churches. And that is to say, humans, pastors and people, design church to be the kind of church they want to be. Now, I just want to tell you, we don't get to do that. 
Christ is the head of the church. There is this doctrine that we call ecclesiology in the Bible, and he tells us how to do church. We want to do church for the purposes and the ends for which he tells us to do it. We want to do it in the ways. We want the elements that Scripture prescribes to be the elements of our worship, acceptable worship before him. So we don't get to design church. But this is huge in our nation right now. Oh, we've decided that we're going to be a church for the unchurched. And here's a, here's a very, very popular, very, very common little saying or a little mantra. It's, it's, we want to be a church that the unchurched people will love. That's bad. Jesus didn't have a church meeting that the unchurched people loved. No, when Jesus was done, they said, I don't want any more of that. Jesus, you should have designed the service differently. You should have crafted your sermon differently so that they would go home and say, well, that was actually pretty good. I really like that. I want to come back for more. So, what, what pastors will actually do is they want to plant a church somewhere, and this has become famous, and a lot, a lot, a lot of people have done this because one guy, his name is Rick Warren, really made it big back then and others before him and with him. And that is where you want to plant a church. You get your clipboard, and you go around the neighborhood, and you knock on doors and say, ma'am, do, do you go to a church? No, we don't. Okay, now I just talk to you for a second. Stick your foot in the door. And can, we, can we just talk for a minute here? Um, I'm planning a church, and I'm, I, I want to know what kind of church would you want to go to? How would it be designed so that you would come? And then you write down their answers, and then you write down their answers, and then you write down, and then you make that church. I have the feeling that Jesus in the book of Revelation with the seven churches of Asia Minor, when he says to one of those churches, you make me barf, I have a feeling Jesus wants to barf about designer churches that are designed to please worldlings who don't have hearts for Christ, who don't have saving light in their souls, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. More pastors need to be more offensive. Not boorishly, but just by proclaiming what's actually in the word and let it do its work. And like Jesus in the, I want to say church, in the synagogue in Capernaum, they were offended. Jesus didn't say, oh man, well, I'll never preach that message again. I better change that. Can't have people getting offended. No, Jesus did not come into Capernaum and do statistical market research. He didn't bring along a team, a sociologist, a psychologist, people who can analyze things. He didn't rebrand. He didn't avoid the hard topics. He didn't reshape them so they don't sound hard. He didn't tickle ears. He didn't hold back the meat and just give them the milk. No, man, Jesus is doling out meat. And they're not liking it. And often this is done, allegedly, in the name of evangelism and for church growth. Can I grouch a little more? Yeah. So everything gets toned down and dumbed down, and it leaves you with one guy as recently called, and I like this, mild Christianity. Soft Christianity, easy Christianity, which is not Christianity. Jesus didn't know about what well, he knew about. He eschewed church growth principles. Here's my number seven. 
The 12, oh, this is so good. The 12 affirm their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away too? Everybody's going away. I've sent them all packing. They're all offended. They're all grumbling. None of them want to hear my message. What about you? You guys want to go away too? You've got to love Simon Peter. He gives us a gem. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? And those words and that sentiment lies in the soul of every true believer in Jesus Christ. We're like those on the road to Emmaus. When we hear him in Scripture, our hearts are burning within us. We love his words. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Such a contrast. The people in Capernaum, can't understand anything he's saying, and it's hard. And Peter and the others, well, most of them, probably not Judas, are saying, oh, no, we're clinging to you, Lord Jesus. We have found life in you. Speaking of Judas, then the chapter ends on a terrible note, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him, Jesus. So imagine that. It's not just the people in Capernaum. It's one of Jesus' hand-picked 12 who he's done life with for three years, or by the end of his ministry, it will have been three years. And even one of them is so dead in his trespasses and sins, so darkened in his soul, so not interested in Jesus Christ, but in the money, that he's going to betray Jesus for money. The father didn't draw Judas, and Judas went to his own place. So now, what about you? What if you had been in that synagogue in Capernaum on that day and had the incarnate Son of God standing before you, looking into your eyeballs and speaking to you the words of eternal life after he had fed 5,000 men, 20,000 people? Would you be thinking, when, when can this be over? I want to go get some bread. Or would you be like, I love the word of God. I love the Son of God. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. And you open your soul to God. How about you? In the providence of God, you are here today, and John chapter 6 has been opened up for you to understand. Will you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this time in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. We pray for everybody who's here today and everybody who hears by other means and other places and times. We pray that your spirit will work in power and that even now may sinners in this room be calling upon your name, Lord Jesus, turning to you and believing in you and finding life. And the words don't really matter, but Lord, may they say something like, Lord Jesus, I believe. And I'm turning that I may follow you. Please cancel out my debt. 
Please may your shed blood atone for my sins. Please would you receive me by grace and make me a child of God. Oh friend, pray that Jesus may be your king. We ask for all in the name of Jesus, amen. Would you like to talk to a Cornerstone pastor? Well, a Cornerstone pastor would love to talk to you. How can we make that happen? Easy way, just text the word pastor to the number on the screen and one of our pastors will be reaching out to you soon.